Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. Okay, y'all. This is How to LA. I'm Ryan De Los Santos. Today, I'm going to share something extra personal. I'm actually going to be going to Mexico for the first time in ever, actually. Mexico is my quote-unquote home country, but I left when I was two years old, and I'm 32 now, so it's been 30 years since I've been in Mexico. The reason why I haven't been able to go back is because I have DACA. And if you don't know what DACA is or you don't know what it stands for, it's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's a 2012 Obama-era program that shields young undocumented folks from deportation when they meet certain criteria. As of September 2022, there were over 168,000 DACA beneficiaries here in California. We get a work permit, we get a social security number. If you live in LA, we're everywhere. DACA people are doctors, they're lawyers, they're teachers, they're students, and they're on this podcast. I applied last year to leave the country through this thing called advanced parole. Certain non-residents in the United States can apply for this, depending on their circumstances and reasoning to leave the country and come back in. For people like me, there are three kind of reasons to do advanced parole, which is business, you know, work purposes, there's emergencies, someone is ill, someone has died in your family, and then schooling, which obviously has to do with education. But the big but in this conversation is that you don't get guaranteed readmission back into the United States. So that's kind of the scary part for many people going on this journey. The process is super confusing too, and it's been kind of scary, to be honest. When I was seeing people in my DACA circles going to school, doing business trips, doing emergency trips as well, I was just curious if I could do it myself. I called up my friend Jose Munoz, who works at United We Dream as a deputy communications director. It's essentially an immigration advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. Hey, can you hear me? And he essentially was on the phone and he's like, girl, now's the time to do it. Yes. Today, he's joining me to talk more about DACA, advanced parole, and that journey. Hey. I also invited Chris Farias, who is my chisme amitz on the group chat and our How to LA social media producer. And he's also a DACA beneficiary. Hey. Damn, you sound so happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. Yeah, that's better. That's better. (laughs) Alrighty, y'all. Keeping it real here, we are not lawyers. But today we're going to talk about the advanced parole process and what it feels like to live with DACA in this country. If you're listening to this and wondering if this is something you could do, you should talk to an immigration attorney first. We'll have some resources for you in the show notes. I want to know first, Jose, where are you at as a DACA beneficiary? What you've been up to? Give us a tea. Yeah, so I came to the U.S. when I was just three months old. I was born in Jalisco, Mexico, but I grew up in Minneapolis, and I live in D.C. now. I got DACA for the first time in 2012. 
And I think like many undocumented people, I started to sort of know about my status and it really started to impact me when I was in high school, thinking about what it would mean once I graduated. Would I be able to go to school, not being able to pay in-state tuition? Would I be able to get a driver's license? There was also a lot of ways that being undocumented impacted me in ways that weren't as easy to tell. Feelings of not belonging, of, of shame. I really didn't meet other undocumented people until I got to college and started to see sort of people organizing on my college campus, hearing about people going to D.C. to lobby for bills like the DREAM Act, what became DACA, which allowed me in 2012 to finish school, to get a work permit, to get a driver's license. And fast forward all the way to 2021, having the opportunity to go to Mexico, which is the opportunity that you're about to go on. Thanks for opening that space for us. Chris, tell me about your journey a bit. Yeah, for me, I came to the U.S. when I was five years old. I was born in Michoacan, Mexico. And I remember my entire journey, and I share it with my younger brother. Throughout these years, we always talk about, you know, like, remember when we were running through the desert, when horses were chasing us? When I came, I I first lived in Anaheim in a very predominantly white neighborhood. So talking about being undocumented was never a thing. I never opened up about it in school. I never told my friends, my closest friends. They never knew. Even like senior year of high school, I knew I'm not going to go to college. I am going to just probably work with my dad, not have an actual like job because it wasn't talked about in my school. And this is like in 2013 when DACA was very much a thing, but it, you know, we didn't really hear conversations about it. I remember one day out of just kind of curiosity, I went into the Boys and Girls Club with my friends after school. They were gonna do the whole like CSU application thing. And I was like, I'm just gonna go and pretend that I can go. One of the counselors there, she came up to me. She's like, yeah, so what school do you want to go to? And I remember pulling her on the side and I was like, I I actually can't go to college. And she's like, wait, why? So I told her and then she's the one that told me, you're misinformed. There's the DREAM Act. There's DACA. You can dream here. Hearing that for the first time was just kind of something that I only could only imagine in my own dreams. I applied and... I've been a docket beneficiary since 2013. Sort of like Jose, like I first met other docket beneficiaries in college and I finally was able to just openly say, you know, I'm undocumented. I want to say that we all have had these experiences of being undocumented in this country in different ways. Me as well, like I went to school without any legal papers and then DACA rolled around in 2012 and that's when I was able to apply for a work permit. But the realities of living with DACA throughout these years, our livelihood in this country is up in the air sometimes. Policies change, there's different presidents, there's different local governments, different state governments that put different measures. And I want to ask you guys just about that feeling how you guys feel about the realities of living with policy changes which come with living with DACA. Honestly, since the Trump administration, I would even say before that, there was a lot of uncertainty around what 
happens with DACA. For almost as long as DACA has been around, there has been folks trying to take it away. Because of my job in 2020, I was able to be outside of the Supreme Court when we won and we beat the Trump administration and they weren't able to to repeal DACA. But I'm putting my like work hat on here um, for you. But when the Trump administration tried to end DACA for the first time in 2017, it stopped DACA in its place in a way. It kind of like limited what the program was able to do. What that meant was that people who had DACA were not allowed to apply for advanced parole. It was taken away. And also new applications, so people who aged into DACA, maybe they were too young to apply, they could not apply, even when they came of age. When we won at the Supreme Court, the same team went back to a judge in New York in December of 2020, and that judge essentially forced the Trump administration to put DACA back to where it was in 2012, which meant that, you know, for a very short period of time, about six months, new applications were accepted into DACA, and then it reopened advanced parole. There's a lot of back and forth around why new applications are not accepted anymore and why advanced parole is still in place. But basically, like the short and condensed version for folks to know is that while new applications, unfortunately, still are not being taken, advanced parole has stayed in place for current DACA recipients. But, you know, currently there is a case going through the courts that has nine states trying to essentially argue that DACA is unlawful. And so there is still this continued uncertainty. And, you know, as DACA recipients, we're having to renew our status every two years. And it makes it really difficult to plan our lives. We are almost always waiting for the next shoe to drop. I feel like for me personally, over the last few years, I've been trying to sort of push back against this this uncertainty, like this this feeling that we have to live in sometimes as a documented people. Whether it was, you know, this advanced parole trip or whether it was even buying a house. Just really trying to lean into the joy that we all deserve to live in. I really love that you say that you try to live in joy in in the moments that you have, whether it's purchasing your first home, it is, you know, traveling outside the country. Those moments of joy that even though there is uncertainty, like you say, you want to, you know, persevere and keep moving forward because, you know, kind of like the fight still continues. Chris, I turn over to you because I feel like you've been opening yourself up a little bit more on your personal social media channels about your experience as a DACA recipient, kind of like creating a space for people who maybe look like you and talk like you. Yeah, um, I think I've kind of unfortunately accepted that I'll probably live in this sort of limbo, not really knowing what's up in the next two years, having to renew every two years and still being afraid every single time when I turn in my paperwork because it's the same exact application, the same exact information, but like I'm always afraid that it's going to get bounced back for whatever reason. I remember when Trump became president, I was walking on campus to my Spanish journalism class and for the first time ever, people were looking at me, probably because I was just, you know, person walking, but I felt like they felt sorry for me, that they were judging me. I just felt like they knew that I was undocumented and that was just such a terrifying feeling. Remember that class, you know, the professor, Professor Letis, we sat in class and we all cried. 
she had always motivated us throughout the whole semester. Like, you know, everything's going to be okay. Like, it's not going to happen. She had no words. And to kind of have the people that you look up to also kind of not know what to say was very, very scary. Ever since that happened, it's very much felt like you kind of want to plan ahead, but you kind of fear that that can just get taken away. And it's anger. I'm, I'm scared. Like It's uncertainty. And, you know, it's hard to navigate sometimes. Social media for me and for a lot of DACA recipients, it's been a place of, you know, it's it's a hub. Especially TikTok has been a place for me to really open up about being undocumented. It's scary sometimes, but recently I have been just throwing in little childhood memories here and there. And it's cool to see in the comments people say, like, oh my God, yeah, like I'm DACA too and we should connect. Students that reach out to me around October-ish when they're applying to college. And it's always so reassuring to know that, you know, the little that I can do to just kind of inspire other people. Yeah, and finding each other on a podcast too. And that's why I hit you guys (laughs) up. Both of you guys are good friends of mine. And I feel like whatever I might need, I could just like reach out to y'all. Another thing to note that to me is very special. We're all three queer men. We're all three queer Mexicans. We're all three queer <laughs> undocumented DACA folks. Yes. Um, you know, hey. So I kind of want to get into how we just start little by little taking steps to try to do this advanced parole. It's a huge thing. Jose, you've already gone through it. Chris, you're excited to try to apply this year. So we're all in these different stages of like Jose's experience. I'm going to go and have this experience. And Chris is looking for this experience himself. When I was sitting down with my lawyer and we're talking now about it over Zoom, it just felt so daunting. And I think just even approaching someone to talk about it can be a lot. Jose, how did you just get started? How did you get that process going for advanced parole? Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but advanced parole, it's not just sort of signing up and you can go wherever you want, whenever Mm. you want, or like just kind of leaving and and being able to come back. No, there are very specific parameters. So I was able to go for a professional opportunity. And so I was going to Mexico City. The first step of that, obviously, was knowing when this was going to happen and then working backwards, essentially, to have a conversation with a lawyer about what it could mean, you know, making sure that I understood. It it actually says it in red on your paperwork that they send you, but like, this is not a guarantee that they let you back in. It's, It's a big decision, like it's a big deal. And I think for many undocumented people, any sort of interaction with like ICE or CBP is nerve wracking, even if you have DACA. And the reality is when you come back, you have to talk to someone at CBP when you come back. It, it's really, honestly, it's it, it's hard to describe. I sort of feel shaking in a sense, thinking back to what I felt coming back in. Going there is easy, I gotta say. <laughs> when I landed, I had to go through customs and I remember being able to go through the fast line because I had a Mexican passport. And it was like the first time I ever recognized like citizenship privilege for for those of us who are undocumented. Obviously we never wow. get that in the US. Yes. And so that. it was it was so easy to just go through the customs and, you know, connect to my flight and go to Jalisco. But it was the way back that was nerve wracking because, you know, you had to 
go through the line and then they have to review the paperwork, which means your passport, the document, the physical document that USCIS sends you. And I've actually gone to advanced parole twice now. And both times I've had to go through like a secondary inspection, which was I had to go into like a separate room at the airport, escorted by CBP. I think I was there maybe 20 minutes. You can't use your phone. I actually got yelled at because someone thought I was on my phone. And I was like, I am like a rule follower. I definitely wasn't on my phone. But anyways, it's so it's a very nerve wracking experience. And so really to start it off, that initial conversation, even about applying for advanced parole with my lawyer, that was a big part of it, you know, was thinking about what the process looks like when you go, what the process looks like when you come back, and like sort of in a way kind of emotionally and mentally preparing yourself for what it could mean when you come back into the U.S. And so that was really the first big step for me was having that conversation with a lawyer to make sure that I 100% understood what I was getting into. I think that's why a lot of people haven't actually done advanced parole is the daunting sentence of that document that they send you. This does not guarantee re-entry to the country, right? I mean, heck, I know I didn't do that because of that. You know, I'm like, yeah. what if I get stuck in Mexico? What if they don't let me back in? What if, like, I have to change my whole career or my trajectory in life because I get stuck in Mexico? I'm going because both my grandmothers on my father's and mother's side, they can't leave the country anymore. Like, they can't come visit me, and they're getting more sick. One of my grandmas got diagnosed with some sort of heart failure last year, and that's when I'm like, I really got to go see them. Both my grandpas died between, like, 2019 and 2021, and I didn't have a relationship with them. You know, I didn't get to see them. My parents didn't get to see their parents and bury them because they were undocumented at that moment. And I actually have never met most of my dad's family. I don't know them. Um, I know some of my mother's family because they've come and visited Los Angeles, but that's it. To me, it was like, I want to see my grandma once again before she, you know, dies. That's why I asked to leave the country to be able to see her. Um, I didn't hear anything back from immigration officials until early February. They sent a letter and it says, OK, you're approved to go for this period to this period. And you have a month to come back in the country. And I'm like, a month? I barely know what I'm doing for lunch tomorrow, let alone in a month. <laughs> I had to plan this trip out of nowhere and I had to work with, you know, my manager here at work. I had to find flights. I had to figure out where I'm staying. Also, the emotional part, you know, I'm going back to a country that I don't know. I am also going as a person that walks in life as a queer person and doesn't hide that. And I don't know the reaction of, of my family and I don't know the reaction of other people in Mexico. It's all these questions, all these emotions. And um, as excited as I am to just be in Mexico, it's also like, I don't know what to expect. I think it's important to sit, like as three like undocumented people, sort of sit in the fact that there is almost like this lack of humanity when you think about the fact that you have to, as an undocumented person, like ask for permission to possibly be reunited with family or to like go see a loved one that's sick. It's like the bare minimum of what we deserve to be able to like 
go through this process of applying to be let back in. Yeah, the fact that we have to ask for permission and just kind of hope that we can see that loved one that's dying. And for me, like three of my grandparents passed away and I wished I could have said goodbye. And I just, you know, again, lack of information and being afraid of doing the advanced parole, but it sucks because I, I have heard from people that get denied and then their loved one dies. And, you know, it sucks. I want to ask you, Jose, like, we had a really nice conversation when you were telling me I should look into doing this. You told me that the experience of gaining something instead of, like, losing something, mm. it really spoke to me. Can you share that a little bit of how you were out in different parts of Mexico and you kind of found pieces of you? There is so much that I was not expecting. I came to the U.S. when I was just three months old, and so I have no memories. So going back was a completely new experience. I would say there's two big things that, that happened for me. The first was I'm in a mixed status family, so my dad is a permanent resident. So he gets to go back and forth, you know, however he pleases. And so he goes to Mexico every year. And so when he found out, my dad wanted to kind of play tourists. So we did museums and we did a tour of the city. Um, but one of the things that we had to do was take a cab across town. And my dad got in the front seat of the cab and I was horrified. I'm like, what are you doing? He spent the entire cab ride, like 20, 25 minutes, because we hit traffic, talking to the cab driver, telling stories and like, you know, just chismeando. And I'm like, you do not know this man. <laughs> but I started to like reflect on that feeling of like my dad sort of being outgoing and being so friendly and, and, and telling these elaborate stories. I never got to experience that because even though he's lived here for decades, he's just not as comfortable in English. Like Spanish is his sort of comfort language. And so it's an experience that I would never have gotten to get in the U.S. It was just such a moment of seeing Mexico through my dad's eyes. Someone who moved to the U.S. when he was very, very young and had to navigate a country where he didn't really know many people and didn't know the language and had to sort of build a life through all of that. You know, for the longest time, as an undocumented person personally, Mexico was always a place I would be sent to. Going to Mexico meant I would be deported, right? Like that was the way that I would be there. It was a punishment. And in this moment of getting to experience my dad in a way I had never experienced him before, it was just such an experience that I never knew that I was missing. And it was such a connection with my dad that I don't think I would have gotten any other way. So do you feel like now that you've been to Mexico at least once, you consider it a slice of home or maybe a remote home that you might have? I think after having the experience of going to Mexico, one of the things that I wasn't prepared for was missing it. Wow. I started to really reflect on it on the flight back. And it was this thought of like, I don't know when I'm going to get to come back here. And there's like a certain sort of like melancholy in that feeling of you know, having this sort of life-changing experience and, and having this bonding experience with my dad. 
And, you know, knowing that he'll be back in a year, right? And not knowing if I will ever have the opportunity to sort of live in a similar experience with him. Uh, I'm just, I'm a little floored here because I'm just like, okay, what is going to happen to me now? Um, (laughs) Not that it's all about me, but I actually do want to ask Chris this question that like, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode was because I, I felt like, just by me sharing, like, hey, I'm going to Mexico. What? And then I, when I shared it with you, you, like, text me back and you're like, oh, my God. I told my mom the news and we're, like, emotional about it. And I, I, I'm just curious, like, what went through your mind? Like, what was that emotion about? Literally, I was just having breakfast with my mom earlier and we were talking about it again. What Jose said earlier about picking up your pieces of you, like, it struck me because... You are going to go back to this place that made you, where, like, you were created, where your ancestors and people that you never even met before will celebrate you. It's so, like, heartwarming to me. I know we all have different experiences, but I feel pretty much alone here in, in the country. I have no family here. It's just my mom, my dad, and my two brothers. If I ever get the chance to go back to my country, that means I get to go back to my family. So that's kind of like when you told me, like, oh, my God, I got approved. For me, that was like, he's going to be home. Because Mexico, to me, has always been home. And maybe it's because I left the country when I was almost six. So I, I did create memories. Like, you were really little. Jose was very small, too. I remember, like, my kindergarten teacher. I remember, like, my grandma's house. I remember, like... The senor that would sell elotes down the street. Like, I remember my friends. There's this little bag of coins that I left at my grandma's house. She passed away, but my dad told me that they still have the monedero for me for when I go back. Mm. And that's exactly what I'm going to go back for, for, to get my little freaking monedero of the coins, because... Those are the coins that I played Loteria with, with my grandma, the the coins that I would steal from my grandma, you know, like, it's so many memories. So I, I thought, I thought about that when you told me that you're going to go back home, like, he's going to, he's going to go back home. Now you're making me cry in my studio <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's just, you know, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, Brian, when when you first learned that you got approved and you told your family, like, what was exactly going through your mind? What did this trip mean to you? You know, <laughs> honestly, I, uh, I've been in survival mode for such a long time. And I just got into, like, okay, there's another thing I have to do. I have to start getting ready for the trip, start booking flights, um, Airbnb or figuring out my schedule with my parents because they're actually going to go with me at the last leg of my trip. I'm going to go to Veracruz and I'm going to, you know, be with my family on both sides. We're going to go to church. Um, We're going to do a lot of things that, you know, I'm not used to, but it'll be interesting. And I was having dinner with someone recently and they're like, what's next? They were asking about my migration status, but I heard the question come out like, what's next for you? And like, I almost started to cry in the middle of a restaurant because I have not thought that further out. 
because you're always trying to just survive and just trying to make sure you're okay, make sure your paperwork's done on time, make sure you're paying your taxes, make sure you're like your record's clean. And um, it's hard, you know, and um, like this trip just means that I'm able to connect with a part of myself that I've never known before. And yes, it's family. And yes, it's like being able to like have a stamp on your passport or whatever. But um, um, it is also learning who Brian is Mm -hmm. outside of Los Angeles, outside of the U.S. So I think this trip means that I get to discover a bit more about myself and, of course, about my family, my ancestors, and my roots. Um, But it's also like giving me giving me permission to live honestly giving me a permission to to breathe and it and it kind of sucks that i say it this way because i'm thinking about jose's words that we have to ask for permission to just even see our sick mothers grandmothers family members we have to ask for permission for this humanity but at least i'm i'm able to experience this and i know i'm privileged to do this and you know whatever happens next in my immigration journey whatever happens next but at least i took this step to do advanced parole Giving you a hug. Yeah, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. You guys are the best. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I'm such an emotional mess now. (laughs) I'm curious to know what song reminds you of home, whether it's in Mexico or someplace with your family. Like, what is that one line of a song? Um, So I was listening to a lot of Natalia La Forcada when I went to Mexico on advanced parole, but specifically Un Derecho de Nacimiento. That sort of always puts me back in in that space of being there. I love that. I love her voice too. Voy a crear un canto para poder existir Para mover la tierra a los hombres y sobrevivir Para curar mi corazón a la mente, dejarla fluir. Para el espíritu elevar y dejarlo llegar al fin. Chris, how about for you? What is that, you know, melody, that song that gets you to think about home? I don't even know the title of the song, and you guys are going to drag me. It's, it goes like, Acereje, ha, you know? <laughs> the only reason. <laughs> That, that song reminds me of back home. I actually have a scar right next to my eye. When I was being a little queer, little four-year-old, I would dance that song in my grandma's kitchen. And I would be so proud of dancing to that song that eventually I fell and I hit myself on the head. Now, whenever I hear it anywhere with my parents or at a club or something, it takes me to that specific time. And it's when I had all of my primos and Tias and grandma and grandpa's like just laughing at me. And it's, you know, the last time I had my entire family together. So. (laughs) Chris. Yep. Can I share what I hope for you on your trip? Yes. My biggest hope for you, obviously, is to have such a great time and connect with with family and, and do all of that. But I also really want you to experience queer joy in Mexico because mm. 
that was one thing that I really wanted to lean into when I was there. And I'm, I'm hopeful that you get to do that and hear what that experience is like for you. Of course. I appreciate that. I'm so excited. Oh, I want him to bring me some Mexican candy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, bring me some Mexican candy. No, <laughs> kind of like what Jose said. I feel like you're going to miss it. And because I know I will miss it. And we just never know when we can go back. So have those conversations with your abuelitas. Ask them about your family drama, family tea. Like, <laughs> hell yeah. Like, El chisme. Ask the, Get the chisme. chisme Get the family chisme. <laughs> exactly. Bring back some stories, you know, that then later on you can share with your friends and family back here in L.A. Oh yeah, we're gonna go to WeHo and we're gonna do a Please. little tea tea sipping hour, happy hour. Jose, you'll be invited. <laughs> Dale, I'll be there in a heartbeat. I love it. All right, you're gonna be like you're gonna be like el padre se hace esto esto lo otro. I know, portate bien. I am, I am. I'm gonna again. You gotta be a good uh, a good citizen in the U.S. I'll be a good citizen in Mexico. <laughs> All right, y'all. So I'm out for two weeks. While I'm gone, the Elias team is going to be here keeping the host chair warm for y'all. So keep on listening to the podcast. They'll be here. And send me your taco or margarita recommendations to my Twitter at Santos one Bye. How to LA is produced by Evan Jacoby, Megan Botel, and Megan Larson is our executive producer. Erica Washington writes our newsletter. Chris Farias is our social media producer. Our engineer is Hasmik Pagosian. And I'm your host, Brian De Los Santos. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is L.A. history. Listen to Revival House on How to L.A. wherever you listen to podcasts.